A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Anna, you may not be able to tell on camera, but I've started strategically sitting myself in the studio as far as possible from <laughs> our little roadcaster soundboard so I do not have to hit play on the road board as I can't tell what color the light is. And sometimes I think I hit play to record and in fact, it doesn't actually record. So Quinta has that duty now. Yes. Despite, despite his natty dressing, Scott is red, green, colorblind. And our, Oh, I didn't rec- know our, that. Yeah. Our soundboard is not designed for people. It is, who are it is, red, a, green, hol- it is a holiday themed soundboard. I don't know why I invested in this given that it only really is suitable uh, one month out of the year. Yeah. It's absolutely absurd. Roadcaster, great company. I'm sure I like your devices, but man, Drives me nuts. All the lights exactly the same color. Not since the Lords of Catan have I had a problem like this. It's a it's a DEI issue. It's discrimination against people with XY chromosomes. I think that's right. I think that's right. Wait, wait. So Scott, which colors are you colorblind? Red, green, but it's really more of a spectrum thing. So like it's it's a bunch of things just kind of jammed together and I get lost in the middle, for lack of a better wow. way to put it. So if you look on YouTube, they have these like several hundred dollar glasses that correct colorblindness, and they have moments where like People put them on and they just break into tears and sobbing because they're finally seeing the real world. I can't imagine I'll have a reaction like that, but maybe I will. And I kind of want to see what this is like. Like I want to watch the Smurfs and be like, oh, that's 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 the thing with this, these people. They're all blue. That's what that means. I, I'm gotta, I hate to break it to you. I don't think the Smurfs is going to be that much better. Well, maybe that's right. I guess it's red, green, colorblind. So that one's really – in theory, I should be okay on that one anyway. But uh, yeah, the one day, you know, listeners – Send it in. We'll be a sponsor. I'll, th- I'll throw an ad your way, whatever uh, colorblind glasses company. Send it my way. We can record the reaction and see uh, if I break down to tears. It's possible. It'd be a great holiday season one, though. There's enough red and green around right now. I feel like <laughs> this would be the time to do it. Or traffic lights while driving, because that also causes me some yeah, trouble that, sometimes. That feels like the thing that we really need to deal with That here. may be better. That may be better. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, here in the Real Life Studio with one of my other regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. We are thrilled to be joined once again by Lawfare's legal fellow, Anna Bauer, as our special guest slash special guest co-host slash generally just special person (laughs) this week. Anna, thank you for joining us in the virtual studio from New Year's locations undisclosed. Presumably, this is your 2024 (laughs) apocalypse bunker that you're huddling down in. This is my 2024 apocalypse bunker in my hometown of Gainesville, Georgia, where I've been uh, visiting my parents. And uh, fun fact, Gainesville is the chicken capital of the world. I actually maybe think I said this on our last rational security episode, but um, so I am in my apocalypse bunker in the chicken capital of the world. Uh, obviously, Gainesville has not heard of a little town called Petaluma, California, which also claims to be the chicken capital of the world, to the point that they specifically <laughs> label their chickens Petaluma chickens to underscore these are very special chickens. Well, I should say Gainesville claims to be the chicken capital of the world in a very specific way, which is they claim to be the chicken processing capital uh-huh. of the world. That's a very because, different game. <laughs> yeah, because they claim that Gainesville did to chickens what Ford did for the automobile in terms of like chicken processing assembly lines. <laughs> That's an interesting okay. comparison to make. This is amazing. I really just want to talk about this for the next hour. And I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> my, my, stake, my investment in this is very limited, but I'm still absolutely okay. intrigued. I should say one more thing about this, which is that because it, we just got through the holidays, Gainesville has a every year instead of, you know, it being a small town that has a kind of normal holiday gathering in the town square where they light up a big like, you know, Christmas tree or whatever. We have a giant chicken that is, you know, sits over the town square that is made out of chicken wire that they have something called the great chicken lighting every Christmas or holiday season where everyone it goes to town like square. sounds a lot like Man. Do yeah, you put a virgin in it and fill it full of bees <laughs> by any chance? <laughs> no, it's just, it's the funniest thing. It's. So if you're if anyone is ever passing through Gainesville, Georgia around the holidays, go to the great chicken lighting. 
Anna, this just wow. gives us so much more context for everything we know about you. It's wonderful. I think the listeners are getting a real a real eye into uh, the the special background that makes you so talented as your work, obviously, <laughs> this sort of detailed, depth in-depth reporting, um, which is why we're so happy to have you here with us this week, because we, despite having taken last week off for the holidays, and although you, hopefully you heard our end-of-year episode that Quinta and I record along with Ben Wittes and uh, some other folks, we uh, are back at it this week, and we had a couple of big stories break in the past few days that's why we are happy to have Anna Bauer here to tack them over in what we are calling the dry January edition, because we're glad that you decided to welcome the new year in with some dry conversation about dry international <laughs> topics uh, here on Rational Security. Topic one, Hamas, no mas. A senior Hamas official was recently killed in an attack in Beirut in what many believe was an operation by Israel, a country whose leaders have pledged to target Hamas's leaders wherever they might be, though it has not formally acknowledged involvement in this particular attack. But pursuing such action across a border that is already on the edge of becoming a second front in the Gaza conflict has many observers nervous. How significant is this operation? Does it risk regional escalation? Topic two, bad for the immune system. Just before the holiday, the Supreme Court rejected special counsel Jack Smith's petition for it to expedite consideration of former President Trump's claim of immunity to criminal charges. And in the week that's passed, briefing is already underway, including an argument by an amicus asserting that appeal shouldn't be allowed at all. What hangs on this case, and how do the courts seem poised to address it? And topic three, the unprincipled agent problem. The Justice Department has leveled additional charges against Senator Robert Menendez and his wife, alleging additional illegal actions in support of Qatar, not Egypt this time, including some in violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Meanwhile, several associates of former President Trump have faced similar charges for alleged work for the same foreign government. What should we make of these powerful public officials and their associates doing this sort of work for foreign governments? And is FARA, the, meaning the Foreign Agent Registration Act, the right tool to address it? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So we're recording this on Wednesday. On Tuesday, Salah Arori, who is a senior Hamas leader, died in a mysterious explosion in a Beirut suburb. Uh, if you read the Washington Post reporting, which is what I'm looking at, there's some cutesy dancing around who might have done it. Uh, the Post says Israel has not claimed responsibility for the strike. It quotes uh, the spokesman for the IDF saying the Israeli forces were in, and I quote, a very high state of readiness in all arenas, in defense and offense. And then uh, quotes anonymously a U.S. defense official saying the IDF was responsible for the, tra- the strike targeting Aruri. <laughs> so not a huge amount of ambiguity. It's also worth noting that this morning, just before we started recording, a massive explosion in Iran uh, seems to have killed over 100 people near the tomb of Qasem Soleimani, the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps commander who was killed by a U.S. drone strike about four years ago. So, Scott... What do you make of both these events? When we were talking before we started recording, you said your read was that the Soleimani explosion was distinct from this attack in Beirut. Why is that? And what do you make of both these things? Yeah. So, you know, the Israelis have a kind of established pattern of doing this sort of thing. Something that dates back all the way to, you know, the post-Munich Olympics uh, campaign where after the uh, attack on the Munich Olympics in which several Israeli athletes were killed, as chronicled in the movie Munich, among other places, you saw Israeli operatives pursue basically like a worldwide campaign of assassination uh, against people who were involved. Um, and this isn't the first time they've done this again regarding Hamas or other groups as well. Um, you think of like the Imad Mugnia uh, assassination in 2008 in Damascus. Israel, I don't think, has ever formally acknowledged that, but it's pretty well established at this point that Israeli operatives were responsible for that. Um, and here in this case where at least the reporting indicates this was a drone with armed with rockets and operating in a pretty st- surgical way is interesting. And and the, the Lebanon attack is a sort of thing that I think we would, people who have watched Israel in this space would expect after October 7th at a minimum. Again, I mean, they haven't been hesitant to take specific target opportunities at hostile leaders for terrorist groups but without such a triggering horrible event as October 7th. They've expressly said they're going to do things like this moving forward. And I think actually one of the more interesting lines is, I can't remember if it was in the Post reporting or the Times reporting, um, but you saw a um, spokesperson for the government come out and say, hey, you know, whether we're not saying we did this or not, but what's worth bearing in mind is that this is not an attack on the state of Lebanon. This is a very targeted action that was very carefully tailored to 
Hamas and the people involved um, without serious collateral damage and things like that. But the person who did this might want you to know. Yes, that. exactly. I mean, exactly. That's sort of, that sort of framing. But that's really important, like, because that is actually an accurate description of this sort of operation. Like, I think this is more the type of thing, A, this is the type of thing that Israel is capable of pulling off. And this is more in the direction of what frankly, like American advisors were hoping Israel was going to do in response to October 7th. Like they were always going to do a higher tempo, higher volume, higher density of attacks in Gaza because there are so many Hamas targets there and they were going to feel obligated to feel it necessary to address, you know, potential rocket launch points and things that could actually harm Israel. But there's a big spectrum between this and what's happening in Gaza now and has happened over the last three months. And something more in this direction, I think, is what we heard American reporting indicates American officials were advising targeted specific strikes in particular at the leadership and operational capabilities, not sort of broad infrastructure devastating bombing campaigns. And that makes sense in the Lebanon context because the, Israel is genuinely worried about escalation on its northern front with Lebanon. It's always a very careful act, a very careful balancing act with Hezbollah, because um, really neither Hezbollah nor, nor Israel probably is eager to get into a military conflict because it would be pretty devastating for both of them and costly, but neither one can fully back down. And so what they can do is that they can take certain types of actions that are kind of below or at an escalatory threshold, guessing that there's going to be some sort of reciprocal action. Like I have no doubt Hezbollah is going to launch some sort of attack, rockets, something like that across the border in response to this but it will be a manageable level and it won't spiral out into a bigger escalation of the sort that they're probably neither is interested in pursuing, but might feel trapped into doing by their own domestic constituencies and commitments. That's what distinguishes this in my mind from whatever this Iran operation is, of, about which we have no details other than the fact that apparently radio detonated bombs by reports were set along kind of a roadside where there's this procession uh, of people in support of Qasem Soleimani on the fourth anniversary of his killing um, by uh, the Americans in Iraq and that it killed dozens of Iranians involved in that. It's very different because that is a, an attack that seems pretty clearly targeting civilians, maybe civilians who are like sympathetic to the you know Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps that Soleimani headed, uh, and therefore not friendly to Israel, but still civilians. And it's wildly escalatory <laughs> because you're killing dozens of people without a clear strategic purpose. Um, you know, whatever criticism and some of which I think is well founded, Israel has come under in regards to the Gaza conflict for not taking civilian casualties seriously enough or in enough consideration. That's not normally the case with these sorts of overseas operations. Like they very clearly are targeting military targets. They take them pretty carefully in, cal in a calculated fashion. And so I'd be a little surprised if this was actually them. There are other groups active in Iran or active around the world that are hostile to Iran and the Iranian regime that could and in the past have pursued things like this. Um, and I suspect it is one of those groups uh, as opposed to the Israelis. Now, maybe they get, like got a nudge or got a support or got equipment from the Israelis who I uh, think it'd be useful to stir up some problems at home for the Iranians. You know, stuff like that might happen. Uh, although, again, targeting civilians hopefully is something that Israelis were not even secondhand involved in, um, if that is indeed what happened here. Uh, but regardless, you know, in terms of a direct Israeli operation, the timing is going to make people draw connections between these two. But I suspect those are overstated uh, based on the facts we have available to us right now. So putting aside the Iran thing as potentially, because I agree with you, Scott, that I think that it seems like based on what we know, it's it's probably something that maybe is not related to what happened in Lebanon and and the Israeli conflict. But uh, I do wonder, you know, to what extent what happened in Lebanon and this kind of targeted attack, it, to what extent does it, is it a kind of a prelude to something that could happen in other countries where there potentially are Hamas leadership, so places like Turkey or, or Qatar, um, is there something unique about Lebanon that makes it, and I'm asking this question as someone who, you know, it has been so focused on the Trump cases, I've had less time to really dig into the geopolitical stuff that's going on in the Middle East. But, you know, is there something unique about Lebanon that makes it kind of something that would not lead to an escalation, whereas if if something similar happened in Qatar or Turkey, uh, that maybe it would. So that's a really that's a really good question. And it is kind of different. And it kind of I think there are different variables that push in different directions that but that make Lebanon a pretty unique candidate. I mean we have to bear in mind Lebanon, southern Lebanon is substantially controlled by Hezbollah, a group that is you know, heavily armed, probably the most capable military actor in the region other than Israel itself, but a kind of an armed group in the region. 
hostile to Israel, has been engaged in active hostilities with Israelis. You think of like the 2006 conflict, there have been like periodic um, volleys back and forth of different types of attacks. And so on the one hand, there is a tolerance for some degree of exchange of hostilities up to a certain level that isn't you know, seen as a massive escalation because it's within, underneath the threshold of what's already happening regularly. We did hear Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, say any attempted assassination of Palestinians or anyone else in Lebanon by the Israelis is going to meet with some sort of response. But but he's he's going to feel obligated to say that. Like, that is not, again, there will almost certainly be a response to this. That doesn't mean it's going to be a response that escalates it from the already pretty tense status quo in which violence is like a, re, a daily reality. Operationally, the the real hook on this is that Israel can really operate much more substantially in uh, Lebanon than it can in other places um, because it's right next door, uh, because Israel has substantial assets, because Israel already has to worry about a lot of security threats there. So they already have assets in place and capabilities in place to address various types of scenarios. So I think this also serves a function in underscoring to Hamas's leadership, perhaps, that it's not a safe space for them. Um, and in some of the reporting we've seen, we've seen reports that Hamas's leaders and other operational characteristics are are now relocating or likely to look to relocate outside of Lebanon for this reason, because in Lebanon, you're still too easily in reach. And Israel has seemed to not be deterred by Nasrallah's threats, at least so far. Again, we'll see what Nasrallah does in response to this, but I suspect it won't be at a major level. And Nasrallah like, has his own interests independent of Hamas. I think most people suspect he will not fully go in on a war with Israel over in an effort to defend these Hamas leaders, and because they are separate organizations, even if they have certain common goals and common sponsors in, in this case of Iran. And so, uh, you know, I, I think likely, you know, you will, there is unlikely to, to kind of spiral out, or at least that's the calculation on the Israelis' part. You know, other places, you, you're not going to see a drone strike be able to take people out with a calculated rocket. Like, that just doesn't happen in a lot of other places, maybe in Syria, maybe a few other places, but not in the UAE or Qatar or other places where this might happen. UAE, that's not going to happen, Turkey or Qatar. But, you know, you, Israelis have occasionally or are believed to have taken out uh, difficult targets in other environments in other ways. Um, it raises international legal questions. It raises domestic legal questions. It's not something states are excited about assassinations taking place on their territory. But this is a case where maybe Israel suspects, I think correctly probably, that it can get away with it, particularly people who are operationally involved in October 7th. So, you know, the, it'll be diff it'll look very different in those environments. doesn't mean it's impossible, but it is much harder. Uh, whereas Lebanon is is already an environment that that Israel has substantial capabilities in, and, and um, it's not surprising to see them be able to and be willing to take this sort of action, I think. You mentioned earlier that this kind of targeted assassination was in line with what many powers had kind of expected that Israel might do after October 7th. And I'm kind of interested by the timing of this. We've seen some news uh, that Israel is planning to reduce its troop presence in Gaza. Um, I saw some speculation that that may indicate that the government is shifting to some kind of a new phase of the war, although I don't know what that phase might be. Do you see this assassination as a signal of anything in that respect, or is the timing less significant insofar as I would imagine this kind of thing takes a, a lot of time to prep and plan and the ability to take that shot is sort of contingent on when the person in question happens to be in a place where you can actually make it. Those are those are really good questions, and I don't think we know with the facts available to us entirely. Um, and we do know part of the demobilization in Gaza that we've seen happening is being described in part as an effort to ensure there are essentially adequate troop and supplies levels to maintain an effective military deterrence in the north of the country because Israel is really worried about potential conflict with Hezbollah, like that, again, would be a much more serious threat to Israel's actual security and the lives of Israeli citizens than anything Hamas can execute right now, honestly. Um, and possibly, probably anything that Hamas could Hamas could ever execute, October 7th being a, a horrible outlier in a lot of its operational effectiveness, right? And so, you know, it, it is a, a more serious threat they have to take into account. And obviously, this is an adjustment to do that. And maybe that is a prelude to the idea that they're going to pursue more of these international actions. What I suspect it is, though, is more that... Israel has kind of exhausted targets in Gaza, at least that they're available of. I mean, like, we haven't seen major hits against Hamas leaders in Gaza, not many. Like, there's a theory that most of its leaders had moved to the south of the Gaza Strip, and now Israeli troops are operating there, and we're not hearing about, like, you know, people being captured or killed of, of senior leadership 
it seems like maybe they did substantially move out of the country, and so they're going to have to pursue these sorts of operations. And so, you know, being able if you're if you're saying your stated goal is to take out the Hamas leadership, you're not being able to do that in Gaza as easily. There are other things being pursued in Gaza, some you know strategic strategy, strategic objectives that make more sense and are more justifiable. Others potentially that might not be. I mean, we've heard a lot of chatter from Knesset members and others about seeking to relocate Palestinians uh, in or even out of the Gaza Strip, and that's you know not something that most people are on board with in the international community at least, um, but might be a strategic factor in what Israel is pursuing and pre- continuing to pursue there. All, all these factors just amount to, I, I don't think we 100% know, but I think it is a sign that like the Gaza conflict is entering into a new phase. Uh, it's a somewhat more complicated one, um, but one where the tempo operations maybe has dropped in Gaza, the intensity of the focus on Gaza has dropped a little bit. Now it's a shift to some sort of longer term posture about, okay, well now what do we do with Gaza that we've kind of devastated it and are in control of it again? And uh, then what do we do with about the broader counter Hamas operations, which now have to go a little bit more worldwide? Uh, or at least the, the the focus has shifted more to the international components. So this is diverging a little bit from our original focus on the assassination specifically. But, I mean, if, if we say, okay, there are indications that Israel is moving to a new phase of the war with Gaza, whatever that means, I find it pretty striking that that means that we've completed a first phase of the war in Gaza that has resulted in, I saw a statistic, I forget where, but it was a reliable source saying 70% of the buildings in Gaza have been destroyed. Um, I don't have the casualty statistics in front of me in terms of uh, civilians in Gaza, but they're appalling. And it's not clear to me still, like, what the goal is, right? Like, if your goal, the the Israeli government said at the beginning of this that the goal was to, I think the phrase was, eradicate Hamas as an organization, and now you're saying Gaza, I mean, it looks, it, if you look at pictures of Grozny during the second Chechen, like it looks like Grozny. It's it's stunning. And the Hamas leadership is like not there or Israel hasn't done what it wanted to do with that leadership. We're thinking of other things now. Like what was the point? Genuinely, what was the point? How How is it that we got through this entire operation or the first stage of this operation and the strategic objective is just kind of shruggy emoji. I mean, am I being too harsh? It's really striking to me. Well, you know, I think the Israeli military would say and has said, like their objective is always to completely vitiate Hamas's operational capabilities. And that means taking out tunnel networks, taking out and so have rocket posts. Is my question. It, I, I suspect they have, certainly in the north of the country. Like the devastation is part of that, right? Like because they have really pursued a very intense bombing campaign that has destroyed a lot of buildings and destroyed tunnel networks underneath them. And maybe you had to destroy all those buildings to destroy the tunnel networks. And that explains why even by the Israeli military's calculations, you have a two to one civilian to combatant ratio. And it's worth noting like most government Estimates of that sort of th- thing tend to be very generous, uh, and that is not a very generous one by by what you know the United States, the UK, and other militaries usually say they have achieved in that sort of ratio in recent urban conflicts. Although Gaza is different in certain regards, we, we do have to acknowledge that. All, all that is to say, you know, I, I think fundamentally, you know, my question is, how is this? If your goal is to make Israel more secure, like that's your actual goal, I have a real question mark as to how this has accomplished that. Maybe you've eliminated Hamas's capability, but you've also established a completely failed state on your southern border, like completely failed beyond, way beyond what it was before. There's no clear vehicle for rebuilding or repairing it. One of the biggest obstacles to Gaza's economy since 2006, 2007 has been the fact that Israel has been extremely restrictive on what imports are allowed in, uh, as well as Egypt, and uh, who controls kind of the southern border crossing. And that has been really restrictive on things like construction materials, because there are reasonable concerns that it's easy to, when you're bringing in tons of construction materials, it's easier to smuggle in arms and weapons and rockets and things like that. But then how do you rebuild when you've destroyed a huge, you know, chunk of the building, the physical infrastructure of this place where millions of people still live uh, and, you know, are not supposed to be deprived of their ability to live um, very easily because they are civilians? It has opened up a whole nest of problems for Israel, um, and I think it's that lack of strategic vision um, that really is the most damnable part of what Israel has has undertaken here, because it's contributed to the civilian casualties. I think in point, I mean, it, it, Israel, as far as I can tell, we've seen the, all these civilian casualties, and while yes, a lot of combatants have been killed, and Hamas's operational abilities have been limited, I'm not sure Israel is more secure than that, all that much more secure for all of it. Certainly in the medium to the long run. 
And that's a hard question that really needs to be asked by Israelis, by members of the international community, particularly when we're talking about such a horrible civilian toll among Palestinians who are, frankly, in a lot of ways, as, as much victims of Hamas as Israelis were. Well, from some tactical moves in the Middle East, let's go some, to some tactical moves in the federal courts. We saw some developments take place over the last few weeks, uh, right in the lead up to the holidays, a really horrible time for federal courts to decide to just start doing things, guys. Please <laughs> I think they're get doing the it on purpose. I think they might be. I, I'm sure they want to have a good holiday. So I get you get your, you know, your decisions out before you go. But we had seen, I think, in our last episode we recorded, we discussed, or maybe the one prior to that, the fact that Special Counsel Jack Smith had taken a little bit of a, a cowboy maneuver, um, deciding to take the uh, President Trump's appeal or stated intent to appeal the district court's decision, finding that he had no presidential immunity from the criminal charges brought against him, all the way to Supreme Court as part of the rocket docket um, to get to them to resolve that matter so it doesn't delay the ultimate trial. The Supreme Court denied that request, um, leaving that particular set of issues to be resolved by the D.C. Circuit, um, which has now heard briefing on it on a fairly expedited schedule. It's worth noting um, they are going to hear oral argument in it next week, I think, a week from now, if I recall correctly, on Tuesday, I think, uh, or a week, slightly less than a week from now when we're recording. Um, meanwhile, amidst the filings that we've seen come in in this matter, we see, you know, Typical arguments that are kind of rehashed as what we saw before the district court from special counsel Jack Smith's office, um, from Trump about why he does or doesn't have presidential immunity to these sorts of criminal charges. Um, and then we saw an interesting amicus come up from a group called American Oversight, which has written for Lawfare that we've done some work with. Um, that was one of these accountability uh, legal organizations um, that emerged after 2016 elections uh, around concerns about former President Trump's uh, conduct while in office. And that has continued to be involved in different types of litigation and other activities around accountability and good governance issues. And they filed a lawsuit arguing, or pardon me, a brief as an amicus arguing essentially that this question of presidential immunity shouldn't be subject to interlocutory appeal at all. In fact, former President Trump should go on trial. You should he should get convicted or acquitted. But if he is convicted, then he can raise his argument that he should be immune on appeal and have that go all the way to the Supreme Court. And I, I want to come to you on this because you've been following, I know, this along with our, these other litigation matters very closely. You know, we're about to hear oral argument in the D.C. Circuit on this case. We know oral argument was expanded to include this question of um, the availability of interlocutory appeal, among a couple other kind of jurisdictional issues raised by other amicus. What do we know about the scope of these arguments and how the Jack Smith and Trump seem to be approaching them versus the amicus? It's interesting that neither of them really seized on this question about the availability of interlocutory appeal, in part because they both are pursuing it in different ways. Do we have a sense about how the court seems poised to resolve this? And if not this court, then the en banc DC circuit of the Supreme Court after it that may ultimately resolve it? Yeah, it is really interesting. And I, I think it's a fascinating brief. It's something that I wasn't expecting to be raised. And it's a really creative brief. And I think uh, good lawyering, even though I'm not entirely sure that I agree with the conclusion that they arrive at. But just to kind of give you a sense of the scope of the argument that they're making, you know, as you explained, Scott, you know, usually in a criminal case, you can't bring an appeal until the the defendant has gone through a trial, there's been a verdict, and then on direct appeal is where kind of all the issues that the defendant wants to raise really gets litigated after there's already been a trial. Uh, but this is kind of one of those circumstances where it seems that there can be an immediate appeal once, you know, Judge Chutkin made her order denying uh, Trump presidential immunity and some of his other issues that he had raised. And then he immediately appealed before trial, which is quite unusual because because the Supreme Court has basically said, you know, there's only a limited number of circumstances in which defendants can do this. In the civil context, for example, there's case law in which in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, which is the case that is the civil case Trump is relying on to try to expand presidential immunity to the criminal context, 
uh, the Supreme Court seemed to say, yeah, you can have interlocutory appeal uh, when you're raising presidential immunity. So it seems to be the case that Jack Smith uh, and his team read Nixon versus Fitzgerald and interpreted something called the collateral order doctrine, which kind of sets out when you can have interlocutory appeals as an exception to the general rule that you typically have to wait until after trial. They seemed to interpret that in their brief and in their statement of jurisdiction to kind of concede that Trump could have an interlocutory appeal, which is quite interesting because, of course, American oversight is is taking a very different approach. They say that in the criminal context, the court has this a case called Midland Asphalt, in which they say, even though in the civil context, you can have, for example, you know, there's something like Nixon versus Fitzgerald, where in that civil case, uh, you can immediately appeal. In the criminal context, it's been much more narrowly interpreted. And and you actually have to have an explicit statutory or constitutional provision that grants a, a personal immunity from suit in order to actually have an interlocutory appeal in the criminal context. So that would be things like the double jeopardy clause, which explicitly, you know, sets out uh, an immunity of sorts. Um, when the double jeopardy clause is triggered, that's something like the speech or debate clause, which explicitly, you know, says that in certain contexts, uh, senators or congressmen are immune from suit related to things that they've done in, in relation to their official duties. So things like that that are very explicit are the things that you can immediately appeal. Whereas if it's something a little bit more kind of, you know, based on principles of separation of powers and you're deriving things from, you know, just what emanates from the Constitution as opposed to what it actually says expressly, then those are the things you have to wait until after a trial to directly appeal in the criminal context. That's what American oversight is arguing. So we have on one hand, Jack Smith and Trump seeming to concede that there is this interlocutory appeal available. You have American oversight as amicus arguing that there is no interlocutory appeal. And it doesn't really matter what Jack Smith kind of concedes here, though, because jurisdictional issues like this are something that a court just kind of can't you know, say, oh, well, the parties have waived the issue, so we don't have to address that. It, it's it's kind of a duty of the court to address these jurisdictional issues if they have concerns with it. So I do think it's something that's going to come up on Tuesday. I'm just not entirely sure how the court will resolve it. I, I think that it's possible that the um, amicus brief overreads Midland Asphalt, you know, I, I, my understanding is that, and and people like Steve Vladek have made this point that there are other types of immunity that are personal immunities that have been interpreted that aren't, you know, exactly expressed, but have been interpreted as being something that is subject to interlocutory appeal, and and it seems to me that as a policy matter, you know, we we really, I think would want former presidents who are accused of crimes uh, potentially related to their office as as being able to, you know, appeal an adverse decision before trial uh, as opposed to after trial. I mean, you can imagine, and, and this is the scenario that Ben has raised quite a lot, is you can imagine, for example, a situation where after you know Joe Biden leaves office and and there's a DOJ that indicts him in the you know Eastern District of Texas for aiding and abetting abortion services there or something like that. I think that just as a policy matter, if if a Joe Biden in that situation has a motion to dismiss based on if there is a you know some kind of presidential immunity that's recognized i think that that's the kind of thing that should be subject to interlocutory appeal 
But I, I'd be curious to hear what you guys think about that in terms of just the policy implications, because there could very well be a difference between, you know, what it means to have to go through standing trial versus just whether or not you're immune from being convicted. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I will confess I have not thought carefully about this issue because the a shout out to Ruth Marcus at the Washington Post, who I think was the first uh, to kind of identify Trump's right to an interlocutory appeal of the immunity issue. I had kind of assumed that that was just what was going to happen, given that Smith also <laughs> seemed to assume that that was going to happen. And so I haven't thought through the legal issues carefully. I confess this argument seems a little odd to me, not from a legal point of view, but just if you think strategically, um, it, it throws a bit of a weird wrench in the works. And what I mean by that is that Trump obviously wants to get this out of the way. He appealed it in the first place. Smith also seems to want to get it out of the way. He's the one who put the whole thing on rocket fuel by petitioning for cert before judgment which, of course, the Supreme Court then denied, but Smith had also petitioned for uh, expedited process in the D.C. Circuit with the D.C. Circuit granted, and so that is moving forward. And I can understand from Smith's perspective why you'd want to keep this moving along in a speedy way because it will be resolved one way or another, like before or after trial, we are getting an appellate or a Supreme Court ruling on this issue. And if we're going to get a ruling on it, we might as well get a ruling on it beforehand than after, um, just in terms of thinking about prosecutorial resources. Now, I guess I, I am assuming that all of this is going to happen with sufficient time for there to be a trial before the election, because that's kind of the fly in the ointment here. If there, if the election takes place, Trump wins, then the whole thing is thrown out anyway uh, by some measure or another. But it just seems to me like Smith has clearly decided that the best move here is just to go full speed ahead and deal with it. And so I'm not, it's not totally clear to me what the strategic logic is of saying, given all that, hey, let's hold up and take a really close look at this jurisdictional issue. Yeah, I'll agree. And I'm particularly a little perplexed why American Oversight is the group bringing this particular claim. Um, if I'm correct, like they seem, institutionally, they seem inclined to be interested in seeing this prosecution go forward in a timely manner. And on its face, you could see how this seems to support it because they're saying, oh, there's no interlocutory appeal. You got to go to trial and then resolve at the back end. But in practice, that's not actually what's going to happen, right? Like if the D.C. Circuit says, you're right, there's no right to interlocutory appeal here based on, you know, Midlands asphalt, then Trump's going to appeal that decision or Jack Smith maybe is going to appeal that decision. Somebody's going to appeal that decision to say, is this a correct reading of Midlands asphalt? And that's going to have to go to the Supreme Court to get resolved. And frankly, like unlike the immunity decision, which is just about presidential immunity and a pretty narrow issue that you know, doesn't affect a lot of actors other than former presidents because it's about presidential immunity uh, or current presidents, I should say. 
you know, interlocutory appeals like actually affect could affect a lot of criminal defendants, right? And you would be, if that's how you're ruling the DC Circuit, establishing reading Midland's asphalt in a very formalistic and establishing a very bright line formalistic rule um, that you know, there is an argument to be made for. Like, I, I think there's merit to this argument, although I'm not sure I'm persuaded by it, but that there's also some graying and fuzzing around the edges is a 1988 Scalia opinion, not a single justice who signed on to it is still on the court at this point. Uh, I don't believe, I, I should double check that, but I'm, not, I'm almost positive. Yes, I'm 100% positive, that's correct. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to remember when exactly uh, Thomas was appointed, uh, but no, that's 100% right. So, you know, if that's the case, you don't know 100% where this is going to fall and on the current court and they may have different views on it and the idea that there's a bright line very categorical determination which you're reading from kind of a little bit of dicta like this was an era where Scalia would write these opinions because he was a good writer there's a unanimous opinion it's worth noting Midland's Asphalt that is but you know Scalia used shapes dicta like he he was trying to draw bright line rules because part of his agenda as a justice was to you know, cabin the discretion of the courts by establishing bright line rules because they were the least democratic institution. A lot of those holdings have gotten a lot fuzzier over the years because courts say, well, it's actually really hard to draw draw a bright line rule that we actually think applies to principles of justice. And this seems ripe to be that sort of candidate. And some of the, you know, other immunity contexts and where you've seen issues and the very compelling argument that you've laid out, Anna, about like practically, is this really the way we want immunity to work? would say, yeah, you you do want interlocutory appeals on these sorts of cases. And are you really going to say, no, there's no interlocutory appeal on immunity cases just because it's not ex- it's expre- as express as these other constitutional provisions, even though you know the Constitution does talk about the presidency and does raise a lot of these sorts of questions pretty squarely? It just strikes me as a hard case. And the Supreme Court, more importantly, like if the D.C. Circuit rules on this, it is going to feel much more obligation to take up a legal question that affects all criminal defendants than it is a question of presidential immunity, meaning it's much more likely that the Supreme Court's actually going to have to take time and hear this appeal and hear this question, which is going to take much longer. So I'm not sure how this actually expedites anything in, in my mind. Right. And and to that to that end as well, I think that people forget that Trump is not just appealing the immunity decision, but he's also appealing this argument that he has about the double jeopardy clause. And the American Oversight Brief doesn't really address the the issue of the fact that, okay, even if a court said, you know, on the immunity issue, there's no interlocutory appeal. They are arguing in the brief that, you know, the double jeopardy clause, it's clearly one of the areas in which the Supreme Court has said, yeah, this is a circumstance in which a defendant does have a right to an interlocutory appeal. I think maybe an argument could be made that Trump's double jeopardy clause argument is not so much a, you know, about a substantive violation of the double jeopardy clause, but more about you know, using double jeopardy clause principles to kind of make this weird argument about, you know, the effect of impeachment proceedings on a later, you know, criminal case. But, you know, with that said, it's it seems to me that the brief doesn't really adequately address the fact that even if the D.C. Circuit, you know, said, oh, yeah, uh, we don't have the jurisdiction to hear this interlocutory appeal on the immunity issue, it's still going to have to decide the double jeopardy clause thing, which is something that does seem to be subject to interlocutory appeal. On the points that you made, Scott, I will say there's a footnote in the brief from American Oversight in which they kind of suggest that the court could exercise you know, what's known as hypothetical jurisdiction. So where if they decide hey, we can't decide this immediately, it's got to go up after trial, they could still then say, but even if we did, we would have decided this on the presidential immunity issue. But and you guys might know more about this, because I haven't, you know, done any research on it. But just my general understanding is that their courts do have some reservations about exercise of hypothetical jurisdiction. So I'm not really sure if that would solve the problem that you've described, Scott, where we could have a situation in which 
a jurisdictional decision gets sent back down and then appealed. And then because the merits weren't decided, it's got to go back through the DC circuit for a merits decision and then back up. And we end up kind of stretching the process out longer, even if the kind of strategic decision by American oversight was to try to get things to go quicker. Well, and I'll say actually that, you know, your flag of the uh, double jeopardy argument is a really interesting one. Like maybe that's a backdoor way how the court gets around this issue, right? Because they can say, look, I mean, even the American oversight, the, the, the you know, uh, Midlands asphalt argument acknowledges double jeopardy is expressed in the Constitution. One of the two expressed constitutional immunity provisions that says clearly are allowed by interlocutory appeal under precedent, the other being speech or debate clause. Um, and they say, okay, well, you're clearly entitled to appeal on that. And given that these are all inherently us interpreting rules to maintain judicial economy. Um, like there's a degree of kind of what in other contexts you would call equity, but kind of like prudential reasoning on the court saying, here's how we're managing our cases and interpreting these rules to do that. They might say, well, for judicial economy reasons and because of all these other prudential equities and considerations that come into play for presidential immunity, we might as well resolve presidential immunity while we're at it. But we're not saying that immunity generally freestanding would be entitled to an interlocutory appeal that's actually the sort of like super narrow ruling that doesn't establish a precedent that's likely to extend very far elsewhere that I could see in a case like this courts maybe glomming onto because it allows them to kind of balance all the other considerations that enter into this calculus inevitably, right? It lets them like kind of thread a needle in a fairly convenient way. Um, so I had that hadn't occurred to me, but but I could see that being a way that that they kind of run the two together and say, this is such an exceptional case because these two arguments are alongside and one, there's no interlocutory appeal issue. I ultimately find it really hard to believe that they will say there's no interlocutory appeal here because no party's argued for it. There are clear potential reasons against it. And you would have to take a hyper, you know, structured argument and an understanding of Midland's asphalt to reach that conclusion, a hyper formalist kind of view. The one reason I think they may think this argument has cachet is because Justice Gorsuch wrote an opinion in the Tenth Circuit that like, leans heavily on a similar perspective. But that's just one justice. Uh, it doesn't mean that he's going to carry the day even if he is one of our, our swing justices these days. If you look at it also just from a totally like political aspect in terms of how thinking about the institutional role of the courts and sort of institutional self-protection, again, if you're the D.C. Circuit or the Supreme Court, you're going to have to deal with this at some point. Why would you want to put it off, frankly? Like, you really want to delay this until right before the election? I don't know. If I were them, I would just want to get it out of the way now. Oh, that was Jack Smith's calculus, and it didn't play out for him with the Supreme Court. Well, right, but, but there's more time. <laughs> there's more time. There's more time. I mean, I, I I tend to agree, like, this is, it's just an avenue that it, it doesn't seem optimal to anyone's perspective. So, you know, legally, there's an argument there. I won't deny that. Like, you could read the Midlands uh, asphalt that way, but all the other factors seem to be make it a, a suboptimal outcome from most perspectives. And this is a case where I think courts will be hesitant to walk down that route. But who knows? We really, it depends on the justices. Uh, I posited before that I could see Karen Henderson gl- grabbing on this argument as a convenience grounds of uh, maybe dissenting from the panel uh, on on uh, proceeding on other issues. But, um, but we'll see. Uh, we'll have to see. Speaking of the legal troubles of high-ranking political officials, Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, is once again in trouble with federal prosecutors. Yesterday, which it was Tuesday, January 2nd, second day of 2024, uh, Menendez was hit with a another superseding indictment. This is the second superseding indictment since he was originally indicted related to uh, allegations of accepting bribery in exchange for wielding his influence to benefit foreign governments. We already knew that he had been accused of using his influence to benefit Egypt, but this new indictment alleges that he also accepted bribes in exchange for helping Qatar. While the indictment doesn't add charges, it does add these new allegations regarding the senator's uh, use of of his office to benefit Cutter. It alleges that he accepted payments from a New Jersey real estate developer in exchange for helping the developer obtain millions of dollars from an investment fund tied to Cutter. 
But Bob Menendez isn't the only Washington insider in hot water for his dealings with Cutter. On the same day that the Justice Department unveiled this superseding indictment against Menendez, there were criminal informations filed against two Republican political consultants who were involved in Trump's 2016 campaign, and they also had worked for then-presidential candidate Ben Carson. The first individual, Barry Bennett, Uh, was an unpaid advisor on Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. And the other, Doug Watts, worked for as a director for a Trump-aligned super PAC. Prosecutors allege that the men covertly accepted cash to work on behalf of the Qatari government. Uh, Specifically, they set up an an organization at Qatar's behest called Yemen Crisis Watch, to bring attention to alleged brutality by the Saudi Saudi Arabian government against a militant group in Yemen. Uh, Both of those individuals, Bennett and Watts, have entered into a deferred prosecution agreement, meaning that they admitted to their conduct and agreed to pay fines and stay out of further trouble for several months in exchange for not being prosecuted. And these prosecutions are a part of an an ongoing and expanded use in recent years of the Foreign Agent Registration Act. And it's something that lawfare writers have been writing about in recent years. And so, Quinta and Scott, I think that it's a good time, based on these Tuesday indictments against Menendez and and Bennett and Watts, to discuss uh, FARA and and. Uh, you know, what should we make of these public officials uh, working on behalf of foreign governments? And is FARA the right tool to address it? To start us off, I think it's really important that we dwell on uh, my former senator, Robert <laughs> Menendez, and the allegations that uh, this time, so the the gold bars we have already covered, um, the gold bars are very important. Uh, The new allegations also say that, according to the government, uh, Menendez received uh, very expensive watches. Um, I'm not sure if they were Rolexes, but if they weren't, they were something comparable in exchange for alleged favors for the country government. And once again, um, so first off, that's just funny. Um, And correct me if I'm wrong, but there's also something about Formula One tickets, right? Oh, yes, 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 yes. He's a man of culture. Once again, the additional allegations about Qatar involve Menendez allegedly using his role as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to help out his friend uh, by doing favors for Qatar. So there's one exchange where uh, he sends this guy allegedly a preview, I think, of uh, statements that he's planning to make in his role as chair of SFRC about something good that Qatar has has done. Um, so this is really an example of him kind of throwing his weight around using that clout as his member of the Senate as a particularly powerful member of, his, of the Senate for allegedly personal advantage. So that is not great. Scott, I did want to ask, I don't have a good sense of the relationship between Egypt and Qatar. Is there anything interesting about the fact that Menendez was allegedly taking money from both of them? Or is that kind of if you got money from one, you would expect you would might get money from another? I mean, it, well, if it were a principled basis on which he was doing this, <laughs> this would be very surprising. I mean, Egypt and Qatar are on the opposite sides of a fissure in Middle Eastern politics, which is around essentially political Islam or popular particularly political Islam, where you have states like Qatar and Turkey um, kind of on one side saying that they are both, well, Turkey's run by an Islamist party. Qatar uh, has ties to various groups with Islamic parties around the, around the region um, where they are comfortable with a lot of political movements that have come out of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is kind of a, uh, a populist Muslim movement, which really has like lots of different iterations and permutations all around the region. But that has come to power at various times, including in Egypt before it was kind of ousted by the current leader, Sisi, uh, in effect, in a coup in Tunisia before it was ousted recently by a presidential candidate who's been asserting, you know, broad executive power in a couple other contexts. And there's this tension between states that are comfortable with those sorts of populist movements in democratic contexts and otherwise, and states like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, being some of the most prominent states saying, we really do not like political Islam. We are worried about the Islamic parties and taking efforts to kind of quash 
popular political Islam, it, usually particularly where it has a Muslim Brotherhood sort of association, although again, that's a very broad umbrella. That fissure has been a reality of Middle Eastern politics for like a decade now, essentially close to it. It was the the or at least a major driver um, in the big divide between Qatar and the other members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, particularly UAE and Saudi Arabia, that really was like a driving Middle Eastern political event for the first year or two of the Trump administration. Um, that the Trump administration played a kind of clumsy role in in various ways and at various points. And so it, it is is weird to see a country, you know, an individual lobbying for both of them and seeing strategic interest in both of them if that's what's motivating them. Instead, it really seems like the motivation here was money, if the facts as alleged here are true, because otherwise it's really hard to reconcile these two. Um, it's worth noting that both are military allies of the United States. They house U.S. military presence in the case of Qatar. They receive a lot of U.S. security assistance in the case of Egypt, um, although a lot of that security assistance is because of Egypt's posture towards Israel and, and kind of a, a hangover from um, the peace agreement between those two countries. But regardless, like there, there's reasons that, you know, to have interactions with both countries, why you might see ways to find common interests between the United States and both countries, like the United States does that certainly. But to be an advocate for them or, or push for them, you know, it, it, it does. There's no clear kind of ideological or motivational or policy-driven line. I don't think that connects the two. The only clear drive here is the fact that they're willing to play these sorts of games in providing financial remuneration. People doing this sort of advocacy on their behalf. I mean, if you're taking money from two opposite sides, I think that cancels itself out, I think that's and that, right. that means you're unbiased. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, both of these indictments, the the one against Menendez and then also the the criminal informations that were uh, filed in relation to these two GOP operatives were they all kind of came out around the same time on the same day. They both relate to, you know, working on behalf of Cutter. Of, of course, they're in, you know, two different divisions of the Department of Justice. They don't seem to have any relation to each other whatsoever. But, you know, what do we make of the fact that these two kind of newsy indictments came out about that both relate to Cutter? Is there anything to that that we should read into? Um, or is it just coincidence? I think is probably coincidence, I would guess, unless there is some like factual nexus between the two um, in regards to um, like the investigations that might lead them to not go public with one until the other, which I don't see from what we from the information and from the indictment, although I haven't done a close side by side to th see what think about whether there might be some sort of tie there. It could also have been because there were diplomatic reasons why perhaps like the State Department wanted to brief the Qataris that this was happening or alert them otherwise. And so insofar as they were going to have to have an awkward conversation, they decided to have one awkward conversation about them together. Um, so like little things like that. But I, I kind of don't think there's a big strategic reason for doing this. And, and we're seeing two very different tacks by the Justice Department, really, right? And why I think it's like a little dangerous to draw equivalency between the two. Um, you know, Menendez is being straight up prosecuted. Like the Justice Department is going at him. Um, and it's in a space where it's, as we've just talked about on the podcast before, where you have had trouble bringing bribery charges and honest services fraud charges and other charges against public officials. The Supreme Court has raised the bar seriously in um, the litigation surrounding former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell like it's a aggressive litigation tactic. It's one that clearly DOJ is motivated to pursue, thinks they can build the case, but knows they're going to face legal challenges from a variety of fronts as well as political challenges, right? It's a hard case to bring, but they feel motivated to bring it. They think they have the case. And the indictment is certainly uh, compelling. <laughs> Some of the pictures alone, fairly compelling, not to mention the gold bars and other facts. With with Bennett and these, these other cases, the fact they're ending in a DPA for the first time, um, as far as we know, anyway, uh, is interesting. Like DPAs are things we see often with like corporate defendants. Like if you see a corporation that's accused of like sanctions violations or Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, sometimes you will say, okay, we're going to pursue a DPA where you may never face criminal prosecution as long as you meet these conditions. And it's basically them acknowledging some wrongdoing, not necessarily going full far as to plead out because again, no no charges are ultimately brought. Like no, the, the prosecution is being deferred. So it's not necessary for them to plead guilty, um, meaning that insofar as there are sanctions tied to, you know, a specific plea, whether it's prison time or other sanctions, they don't have to do it. They also, like for corporations, don't have to disclose it in the same way. Um, it, it functions a little bit differently there. That toolkit now being applied in regard to these individuals, it's, it's an interesting development. 
And it shows DOJ is actually kind of like softening its toolkit in regard to FAR enforcement, I suspect. We've seen cases where where there's definitely an interest in enforcing FAR in a much more serious way than there was a few years ago. A few years ago, FARA was like a kind of joke of a regime. Very few people complied with it uh, adequately or fully. There hadn't really been any prosecutions under it. And then after 2016 election interference, there was this effort to say, well, what tools do we have to clamp down election interference? Oh, FARA is here. This is a good one. Um, and then it turned out all these Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds and other groups were like really doing a lot of stuff that's pretty objectionable under FARA that has now come out in a number of directions, including these cases. But we saw DOJ bring a prosecution against Tom Barrack, another former Trump associate, under FARA for supposedly working for the UAE, again, a country on the other side of cut from Qatar, uh, from this kind of ideological divide in the reason and for, region and from a lot of their interests. And that prosecution failed. Uh, he was acquitted, ultimately. Meaning it's actually a high bar to get criminal prosecution on these. If you are facing that sort of failed scenario, TPAs make a lot of sense. You're, the person gets to say, I was never criminally convicted. Um, I made a mistake. I did something wrong. I misunderstood the law. I exercised some poor judgment. Didn't rise to a criminal level, but I acknowledge some responsibility. I'm going to pay a penalty. I know not to do it again. And DOJ still gets the deterrent effect because the penalties are pretty substantial financially. Um, so I, it's interesting to see that toolkit. And I think it it shows that like we're going to see a lot more FARA violations resolved on these sorts of non-prosecutorial grounds. But it's it, it tells me that like DOJ is thinking about these two prosecutions or groups prosecutions in wildly different ways um, and, and taking them very different directions quite deliberately. Well, folks, that is all the time we have together today. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Quinta, what do you have for us? So I tend to use the week between Christmas and New Year's to read as much fiction as possible uh, because I don't really get the time to do that over the course of the rest of the year. And uh, this year I decided to tackle a novel that I've been attempting to finish for literal years um, it is The Savage Detectives by Roberto Bolaño, the Chilean author. And I'm happy to report it's great. I highly recommend it. Um, I do not suggest attempting to read it in Spanish if your Spanish is mediocre, which is what I did um, and is probably the reason uh, that I did not finish it. But if you read it in the language that you actually speak fluently, it is sharp and very funny. Uh, it's kind of about Bolaño's own life, very lightly fictionalized as a kind of enfant terrible in 1970s Mexico City. Like all Bolaño novels, it it kind of takes a little bit to get going. But once you let the nightmare sweep over you, it is very engaging. And I had a great time and I haven't really stopped thinking about it since I finished. So recommended Savage Detectives by Roberto Bolaño. This is like the third Bologna book that you've yeah. recommended recently. Uh, I have not read that one either. I've just read 2666, which I feel like is a weird entry point. But I would So if you're interested in starting Bologna, I would recommend starting with Distant Star, which is in, most importantly way shorter. That's and kind good, of gives you a edge. lot of the taste of what he's going for. But yes, I, I love a, the way I'm the a box set looks fan. on my bookshelf. Two six 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 because it's got this like intense art and crazy patterns. But uh, yeah, it's kind uh, of a heroic. I read it like vibe. 10, 15 years ago or something, and I've not picked it back up again since. So, but you know, interesting. Okay, good. Distant Star. I'll put that. Put which, that on which the list. I actually think I recommended Distant Star as another. I think you did. Actually, I'm yes. working through the oeuvre. That's good. Well, I. For my object lesson, I did not have any time to read books on this holiday break. This is my first holiday with like an active three-year-old toddler on Christmas. And, you know, we were both all my entire family very sick for, for most of the month of December, uh, unfortunately, with various ailments. Uh, and so, man, I just ha- was completely exhausted for this entire holiday break. I did not have time to read. I'm, I'm reading one or two books for book reviews for Lawfare. That's the only books I had time to read, and I'm still working on getting through those. But I did finally, after some careful strategic and a couple failed efforts, um, and thanks to the generosity of my in-laws in the city of Denver, get out for exactly two hours without my children, uh, my wife and my, or with my child, with my wife and my brother and sister-in-law, um, we were all able to leave our children with their grandparents for a night and get out between the hours of nine and 11 in Denver. Um, and I got to go somewhere I've been wanting to go for a while. And I, they did a favor to Rational Security listeners last year on the holidays. I wanted to give them a shout out. That is the bar BNGC. This is a, uh, 
um, one of these new breed of hip sort of uh, speakeasy type bars. To get there, you have to make an appointment and go down a dark alley in the middle of the night, but it's in like Cherry Creek, Denver. So it's like not, it's fine. Not a big deal going down this particular alley. And you ring a, do- a gold doorbell behind a service door and you get ushered in and walked through the kind of like steamy back rooms of a the fancy Halcyon Hotel in Denver and then brought to a very lovely cocktail bar um, with a couple of booths where they serve you custom cocktails. It was delightful. It was a wonderful way to, wonderful way to spend a few hours over the holidays uh, with my family uh, for a little adult fun time, um, which I greatly appreciated. And they are the same group, and I believe were part of the same bartenders who developed the Diplomatic Handshake, which was my favorite cocktail of 2022, uh, the recipe for which I shared on Twitter way back when. I'll try and re-up it maybe uh, in response to this today, which I think is a great cocktail. Uh, and they had a couple other good offerings that night as well. So check that out if you're in the city of Denver, Denver, BNGC. Really appreciate your hospitalities and your willingness to share that recipe last year, guys. And uh, all around, also, just the Halcyon Hotel. Local Jones is there, a great restaurant. And Quality Italian is also there. It's a great, great, cool, hip spot in the middle of Cherry Creek, which is not always full of, of hip spots. So um, for Denver locals, check it out. I don't know how many listeners we have there, but I'll shout them out. Anna, what do you have for us for your object lesson this week? Well, I would have said the great chicken lighting in Gainesville, Georgia, but we, <laughs> we already you talked about that. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that my object lesson today, uh, on New Year's Day, I went to a dinner party and I have never had a tarot reading. Do you guys know what that is? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a, a set of cards and you know, whoever is trained in reading the cards will pull them out and do a kind of reading reading of your past, your present, and your future. And so in the spirit of New Year's, we all had our friend read, do a tarot reading for for those of us who were in attendance. And it was really fun. I mean, I don't, I, I, I think that I probably would be telling you something different if my uh, cards that I'd picked had been all terrible. Um, but it, it basically, my future is that I'm going to have a great year. So I was very happy with that result. <laughs> And uh, it it got me uh, looking forward to 2024. Also, the reason that I'm thinking about tarot cards is because there is a Fox News segment that I just watched before we started recording this in which Jesse Waters, the Fox News host, had a tarot reader come on his show to do a reading for Trump in 2024. (laughs) (laughs) And it is... Absolutely a hilarious clip because she pulls the card out and puts it on the table and then she immediately goes, Oh no. <laughs> and, and and it's a picture of is like it the, the tower. Is it the fall from grace? That's, a, that's the card I always remember. It's a picture of the Grim Reaper, and he's like, Ooh. What does it mean? What does it mean? And she goes, Loss. And and then she she tries to explain it as you know, you can read it in different ways. Maybe it means he's focusing too much on what he lost and not on what he has now. And Jesse Waters is like, that's a good way of reading it. And so I suggest that even if you don't get your uh, uh, tarot cards read, uh, that you at least watch that Fox News clip because it is quite hilarious. Oh, I love it. Yeah, and if you're going to get your tarot read, get, eat your black-eyed peas beforehand. Get your good luck, your New Year's <laughs> black, good luck, uh, before you get that ruling. Um, th- that's going to define the rest of your year for you. Well, on that note, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work, and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. While you're at it, be sure to follow us on X or Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. In addition, consider signing up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. For more information, visit lawfaremedia.org slash support. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by the wonderful Sophia Yan. We were once again edited by the stupendous Jen Pachahal. I'm changing my adjectives for the new year. On behalf of my co-hosts, Quinta, well, my co-host Quinta and my dearly departed, much lamented <laughs> Alan Rosenstein, who is not dead, uh, <laughs> and our special guest, Anna Bauer. I am Scott Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.